0: I'm to be able to People, I'm Lizzie Metam and welcome to People My Dog Would Like, where I get to chat with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on a compassionate future. Today, my guest is Tony Lane Cassilly. Ms Lane is an entrepreneur in the digital currency and blockchain industry who co-founded Cointelegraph, the largest media network in the Bitcoin and blockchain industries, and more recently is the founder of Culture the virtual blockchain nation movement. She is an empath, investor, artist, advisory board member and founder who has been affectionately titled the Joan of Arc of blockchain by her peers and various publications. She serves as an advisor to several well-known companies, funds and family offices including Singularity University, Polymath Network, Factum, United Nations, Propy, HSBC, Cisco, P&G, Institute for the Future and St. Gallen Symposium. She's big on love, empathy, justice, fairness and inclusivity and I truly believe her movement will gain traction and change the world. Did I say she was big on creativity too? She's big on creativity too and redefining what it is to be human in other worlds, Miss Lane is a recording artist and the founder of Immaterialism. It's a post-art movement where she uses consciousness as a medium. Tony, I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Thanks again for being a guest of People My Dog Would Like, because people my dog would like are people who are <laughs> smart and all about compassion and empathy. And Tony Lane-Cassley, Castley, is you. That is you. Oh, no. you. Hi. <laughs> Hi. All the way from me. Are you in San Fran at the moment? I yeah. What's the weather like there at the moment?
1: Uh, temperate. I mean, it's not the, what is it, like 33 degrees Celsius and in Australia. So it's, uh, it's, it's in between Australia and Antarctica somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, here it's really weird. It's been like 38 degrees and then it'll drop to 25 degrees. And today we're going to have a storm. So I have no idea what the weather's ever like. In Melbourne. Four seasons in one day is what we get here. But listen, Tell me a little bit more about yourself. What do you do in the world and what led you to blockchain and crypto? I mean, blockchain's going to change the world, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to
1: change the world and blockchain is a tool that helps people, uh, that empowers people to create the change that they'd like to see in the world. It's like people need tools to actualize their full potential as beings to really build. So I got into the blockchain industry in 2011 because I was speaking on the disillusion of popular political theory. Um, you know, we no longer live, we live in the illusion of a democracy where disinformation is just as powerful and widely used as information is, and whether that's by an opposing national body or our own state, uh, those strategies are being run from a high level to disempower people from really engaging and participating in the political process around the world. So once Mm -hmm. I started speaking about the disconnect between the principle of what a government or what a democracy, quote unquote, is and the actual reality of the system that we live in. I had someone approach me in 2011 to say, I don't know if you've heard about this Bitcoin thing, but you have to. This is your whole world. This is you. So Mm -hmm. they gave me this USB and I immediately recognized that this was what I was looking for fundamentally. And I've been in the industry ever since.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously I know that you're a co-founder of Cointelegraph. When did you start there?
1: Uh, That was in 2013. I originally started Cointelegraph because I wanted to create, I wanted to re-incentivize the media and create information marketplaces that create more of a collective environment for truth to prevent the spread of disinformation by incentivizing real perspective uh, an objective analysis grounded in fact and reality. So the the business model was essentially Bitcoin uses computer mining to create currency. My model was that you use data mining on essentially like a U-Torrent for information, an information marketplace. That use data mining to figure out objectively and to analyze. And then once you're able to mine this data and get a process of fact that's determined by both humans and AI – Then journalists come together, download and pay for the information and use that to construct stories. And then once someone creates a story, other people earn money by commenting on this and providing objective perspective. So the more perspective the story has from, you know, different people with, you know, different kinds of opinions or different frameworks for thinking, the closer we get to some kind of objective truth, truth within a realm of uh, information that's mostly disseminated as opinion. So that's a really why I started Cointelegraph and it just ended up becoming uh, so successful as a traditional media business that I started focusing my energy on building uh, my other passion project about three years ago, which is culture. And that is using the blockchain to create essentially virtual nation states to do for the idea of the popular idea of the nation um, as Bitcoin did for the popular idea of a financial institution or a bank.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so drill down a little bit more about culture. Then. So obviously, Bitcoin's solving some wicked problems in finance worldwide for individuals that are the unbanked, but also just to, you know, get rid of the uh, middlemen in financial industries. But what? 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 are you doing on the blockchain with culture that is solving a problem can you talk talk a little bit more about that
1: yeah for sure I think it's easy for me when I can give I build what I build for humans right so it's easy if I can give some really easier for me if I can give some really human examples about how this big complex technical system works um so imagine that you're a refugee, right? And you left your house in Syria during the middle of an airstrike. You did not have time to grab anything. The only thought in your mind was, I have to get out of here. So you left, you mm. grab grabbed your passport, and now you're traveling to a new country, and you're trying to apply for citizenship, but you don't have any documents that reference who you are. But what you do have around you is your mom, thank God, your mom made it out with you. And so your mom can verify that you are who you say you are. And maybe you meet these guys in the refugee camp and you build a house for them. And so these guys can say, or these girls can say, well, he or she uh built me a house. So not only can I verify that they exist and this is who they are, but I can also give you information that shows you that they have skills as a carpenter. And this is how Mm. and this is how I met them. So you can understand objectively through this process of essentially taking identity. And putting it into the hands of the people and into the hands of essentially a social network of verification for the context surrounding the person is beyond just like their thumbprint or something like this. So that's going to be ultimately necessary when we're living in a world where the refugee crisis we're seeing from Syria is really the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, for what we'll see in terms of migration and, uh, you know, displaced citizens, displace civilians from climate devastation.
0: So, Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, it went further than that. When I was listening to a couple of the um, talks you were giving, it was great that I saw that you can register land titles, you can create marriage contracts on the blockchain with this tech. And basically, I mean, I think you mentioned it was Uganda, people yep. who are LQBPQ can't get married um, and think they're even put in prison for life, aren't they? And it's that kind of problem that it's also solving. So it allows for freedom and it's borderless. Yes. What we're
1: effectively doing is it's, it's really two things. The foundation of what we're doing is about providing ubiquitous access to human rights. So that does mean that LGBTQIA hmm. citizens living in Uganda could anonymously register their marriage contract and be buried through an anonymous network of trust. Uh, so it's providing a legal system mm. of rights outside of the bounds of the traditional nation state. And then on top of that, we have a series of DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous organizations that are oriented toward mm. problem solving. So if you, instead of politics, because we believe that the future of nation is based on the alignment of principles and the problems you want to solve in the world instead of saying you're forced to participate here because you just happen to be born in this area or because you live in this place, you're somehow better or worse off. So it's really aligning people based on human incentives instead of political incentives that cause us to, you know, political incentives are like lie, cheat, steal, and then you win the game. Yeah, We believe that life, is an infinite game with infinite players. Nothing should be zero sum.
0: Yeah, well, lie, cheat still seems to work in the capitalist system. And what I was also really interested in reading about some of the things you said was you were talking about we're living in a democracy bubble. What do you mean by that at the moment? Yeah,
1: so it's just the idea that reality doesn't connect with the way the system works at all. And we're seeing that. I mean, I started talking about this in 2011, and we're seeing that implode on itself because we're convincing that we live in a democracy when if you actually look at the incentives in the system, we do not live in a democracy. It's very easy for people, you know, political regime families to kind of coerce their way into a leadership position in the system because there are so few people who make their way up that far that they're able to effectively, you know, they're able to rig certain processes just because they understand how the system works. And that's fundamentally... Unethical, regardless of how better or worse someone is, the behaviors in the system are no longer representative of citizen interest. The capital is not being used to represent citizen interest or human interest. And it's about partisan politics over the interest of citizens. So even if citizens say, I completely disagree with this politician or this person or this principle, uh, they're disempowered because their, their individual representatives might say, I have no interest in the views of the people. The only thing I care about are tax cuts because they're incentivized to win a game for the benefit of the system, not to win a game for the benefit of humanity. So the incentives in the game playing in the current construct of politics are wrong. That's exactly what we're working to redefine.
0: Which is exactly why I wanted you to talk to Adam Jacoby, because that's what they're after as well, showing truer democracy because you certainly don't have democracy anymore I do know that we've got a fundamental problem in in Australia as well with democracy and and leaders who are generally not representing their electorate it's it's outstanding yeah. actually what they get away with and if you're working in the corporate space you'd be sacked if you weren't representing your shareholders but not in politics it's extraordinary that the legacy of the political space or the government or governance space is so outdated. So listen, I also recently heard that you were guys up for an award at the U- United Nations. Is that right? Or was it a rumor with this, you know, with, with your movement culture? You know, we might be and I might
1: just not know. This hasn't been the first time it's happened where I've been nominated for some It This wouldn't be the first time that I've been nominated for an award and I haven't known until someone's called me and asked me, where was I? And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, for your
0: acceptance of this thing. No one ever emailed me. I had no idea. (laughs) United Nations, hopefully they'd give you a bit of a tap and let you know. So maybe it is a rumor, but I think that's a good rumor, right? I mean, that's a rumor that you really want to spread. That's great. (laughs) Hope so. (laughs) So and you're also, you know, obviously you've been working in the blockchain space for a long time to enable a more human society and for culture to be really where we're about. And I wondered what impact that you thought that would have on the future of work and and how we're kind of going to engage in the future. I, I thought you'd have a pretty... Interesting uh, perspective on that.
1: Yeah. So the Internet of work is something we're so we talk about what we're doing at a foundational level is the Internet of sovereignty. But on top of the Internet of sovereignty, what sovereignty mm-hmm. really means, let me explain this in a simple, rational, economic way. OK, if you have sovereignty and ownership mm-hmm. over your identity and over your data, this is how we create a future of work that's based on problem solving, not capital and an infinite economy. Because think about it this way, okay? Your digital information and your data is a non-scarce resource. Mm. So we are generating new data and new information every time we click on a website, every time we take a photo and post it on Facebook or Instagram. That is a non-scarce resource because as long as we are still using the internet, um or texting people or using a piece of software we are generating an asset for that digital software that's why these tech companies have these massive valuations and these huge market caps it's because they own the data so our data is a non-scarce resource yeah and culture like the culture token the culture blockchain what we're working on and by the way we're not doing an ico we're building long-term sustainable technology with a focus on security um, but the way I think about token infrastructure in right. particular is that if you are designing a series of scarce economies with non-scarce resources, then the idea of capital verges on the infinite. You change the incentives of the game and you can eliminate in that way the zero-sum mentality and the zero-sum attitude. So this is really how we think about the, the future of work and the internet of work is that when we orient the process of what used to be politics into series of quote unquote nations of people that are aligned on their values and their principles, like indigenous tribes, who my my co-founder um, happens to be um, one of the most influential indigenous elders in the world. His name is Chief Phil Lane, the leader of the Dakota and the Chippewa. So when we Mm -hmm. orient around values, principles, and a set of morals, and then we align with different cultures and different nations who share our dynamic set of principles as individuals, then we can all collaborate collectively on, you know, individualized or collective problem solving, whether those are the problems of one culture or nation, or the problems of the planet large. Mm. And if we continue to contribute what is a non-scarce resource into an economic system or a series of economic systems that are designed to be inherently scarce, we eliminate all of the violence. We eliminate the incentives for violence from the ecosystem because we eliminate two you can eliminate these two main fears that humans have, right? And one is one is death and the other is really the one we're addressing is survival. My artwork addresses the the fear of death and my work as a entrepreneur addresses the fear of survival. And so with strong community connections yeah. and you know the ability to freely participate in many different economies where you're receiving value from your your deep it's deep wealth, the process of meaningful contribution. And when you're actually, you you have then a series of support networks of people who are focused on, you know, the collective interest and also your well-being. And then you also have meaning from the work you're able to carry out in the world and the problems you're able to solve. The economic rationality underneath that is is merely a tool that we can use to incentivize people to become more effective game players while, you know, eliminating their need to even think about or consider that they should have to be concerned for their own survival.
0: Yeah. I guess the only, I mean, I love the sound of that. My, And I love the guiding principles that you work with the culture. I mean, even down to how the discussion circles are proposed, it was really inclusive, respectful, very ethical. But, you know, we all, I guess we all know humans for an eternity have engaged in conflict. I mean, I guess, how do you propose having an impact on this fundamental fact? I mean... I'd, for instance, I'd be interested to know if you feel peace between people will be possible, let alone nation states, when the GDP of the U.S. relies on selling armaments and warfare systems to other nation states. It's their number one export. Well, so to, to address the economic question initially,
1: i just like to take a moment, and this will change. It's going to be so funny to hear how this interview gets dated, because Bitcoin's been around since 2009. And if you look at the market cap of Bitcoin It is surpassing the wealth of the top 25 nations in the world. So the market cap of Bitcoin has, has more wealth than the United Arab Emirates, than Denmark, than Ireland, you know, than, than many other countries, um, in the world. Most, most other countries that exist in the world, it's in the top 25. It has over almost a $300 billion market cap. Um, yeah, so incredible where the incentives are in terms of the process of global and international trade. Bitcoin is not the bubble. It's the pin. And what that pen is doing is, is popping the disillusionment we've had with global currency because one, GDP is not an effective measure of an economy because if we were really looking at, you know, what is the wealth of nations, what you'd actually see is that we've been generating more debt than we have wealth for maybe the last 50 years. Actually, the market cap for Bitcoin, just to give you the, the straight facts of this exact moment is $318 billion, almost $319 billion. Um,
0: so, yeah, insane. I mean, it's not
1: insane, but it is incredible
0: how fast it's moving, yes. isn't it?
1: And so, if you, Bitcoin is the pin, not the bubble. Yeah. And if you really look at the incentives for what's happening in the process of global trade and with the amount of innovation that's happening in the digital currency industry. We're going to see some really significant shifts in the foundation of the way we think about the economic logic that's actually guiding our civilization into the next generation of our own human evolution. So what was now the other, the other question that you asked me to address is you were talking about um, global trade and the exchange of kind of like weapons is a guiding force for some of these economies. What was the first? Part well,
0: of that just place? enormous, isn't it? That's, that's, oh, I've only brought it up because it. I mean, I've only brought it up because it is so relevant. I think because it is such a massive part of the US GDP. Yeah, uh, you know, armaments export. Yep, it's just hideous. Yes, I agree. Violence.
1: Yeah, and most people would not. Most people would not pay into a system that encouraged violence if they had the option. If you actually asked taxpayers, unless you were manipulating them, I don't think most people would generally say, yes, I'd like to murder groups of innocent civilians. You know, I don't think these are decisions that most Absolutely. People would, most people would support. And I think that the counter defense would be most people don't want to think about those things. And you're right that they probably don't. But I think we should eliminate the need for anyone to have to make Decisions like that, which is a possible future. Ah, uh, you were asking about peace between people. Yeah. So this is something I've done an intense amount of thinking uh, about because really to have peace, right, on whether whether or not you're living in a society that's using guns and violence, you using guns and weapons to create violence and murder and death, or you live in a society of people that maybe, you know, they have, they're, they're economically well off, but they're still struggling with mental challenges and they're still very traumatized. You know, there are people with a lot of wealth that I, I would consider yeah. to be emotionally violent people. And I think emotional yeah. violence has, emotional violence has the same effect on your brain as physical violence. If a person emotionally abuses you, it is a, it is a cognitive form of the experience that you have when you actually go through the process of physical violence. So the way that we're addressing peace between people is through the process of individual ownership of a sovereign identity through web of trust. And then on top of that, having a reputation system constructed around the idea of uh, restoration and emotional objectivity. Um, So it's more the idea. So what's that?
0: Break that down a little bit.
1: Yeah. So it's the idea that, you know, we need to be honest and transparent about, We need to be able to have open, honest, emotional conversations. And those need to be, those need to be incentivized between people. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to understand that, you know, our reputation is also a way, if we're looking at identity as a process of social networks, then we also need to factor in certain kinds of subjective and collective trauma. And we need to focus on solving those problems. So, The identity system works as a process of verified claims. So it's the idea that if someone is going through an emotional issue or they're going through a certain trauma, um, let me actually, I could actually read you a core use case that we have for reputation. Because if reputation isn't a binary metric, right? People aren't good or bad and reputation isn't positive or negative. People are a collection of experiences, and what we're really trying to understand is what is the individual's subjective experience or their subjective trauma, and how does their framework for reality overlap with other people's frameworks for realities based on their understanding of the way the world works and their principles, as well as their subjective emotional experience. Because when we incentivize the process of restoration by addressing people's traumas in a way that is objective, it allows people to essentially make claims to say, not, hey, you're good or bad, because that's attacking someone else. But this made me feel like this. Because sometimes, People don't always think about the fact Mm. that maybe you were in a conversation with someone and they said something to you and you felt like really demoralized and you said, and you go, you go later in the day and you say, you know, on their claim page and you make a claim, whether as yourself or as an anonymous identity, and you just address that this made me feel that way. And if a lot of people are continuing to make those claims with anonymous or verified identities, that means we have a bit of clarity because sometimes people don't see. And the other element of this is through the process of creating a series of unverified and verified claims, we can make people aware of how their unconscious traumas or unconscious biases or perceptions are affecting the feelings and the actions and the thoughts of the world around them. So it's really a process of uncovering spectrums of our collective awareness through incentivizing emotional honesty. And from within that emotional honesty, uh, incentivizing the collective healing process through objectively addressing an issue without placing blame on an individual but merely seeking to understand what informs their experience and if you want like a very tangible use case that I wrote out about specific trauma and situation I could totally walk through that with you
0: yeah that'd be great I think it'd be good for the listeners too I think they'd get their head around it a bit more because I'm really interested in in flipping it into being incentivized to be more empathic I loved that idea and I thought if you could if you could create a structure or a a system that was rewarding people that were more empathic, it would be an amazing place, wouldn't it?
1: That's exactly what we're incentivizing. We're incentivizing the process. I mean, I'm an empath, right? So Um, I have friends that are even more Mm -hmm. extreme empaths than I am. And it's about incentivizing the process of collective empathy through reputation networks that are based on the idea of human connection and restoration. So it's even if someone's action makes you feel bad, it's about addressing what would cause someone to behave like that rather than demonizing someone and saying like, you are a bad person because you made me feel bad. It's about saying, this made me feel like this. Why would you do that? And do you know that it hurt me? Why would you do that? And
0: yeah, are you aware? Of your, are you aware of the energy that you give out, or are you aware of your behavior and the impact it's having on people? Yes. So to give a tangible
1: example, um, so we're going to have a story with two people. They're Jordan and Chris. So Jordan is making sexual harassment claims against Chris. Chris has never had a sexual harassment claim. Chris is married with children. Chris is an executive with a power position, and Jordan is an independent journalist. Jordan, the independent journalist, went through an extensive amount of abuse as a child, and no one knows this. So something that Chris said, did, or incentivized accidentally triggered Jordan's trauma from the childhood abuse and made Jordan feel uncomfortable. Jordan makes a sexual harassment claim against Chris with an anonymous identity on Chris's public identity profile. The anonymous identity that Jordan has created will likely give the claim Jordan makes against Chris a lower credence on the totem pole of verified claims unless the anonymous identity that Jordan has created has gained extensive reputation points through contributing previous work to a system Or through public verification of the anonymous identity or claim that Jordan has created from another trusted node in the network with a high reputation. The anonymous identity may also have different reputations in different cultures who share different values and belief systems, which are transparent and verified. So Chris sees the claim that Jordan made against Chris for sexual harassment. Chris's network also sees the claim that Jordan's anonymous identity made against Chris, and they proceed to chime in without any incentives to provide positive feedback, supporting that Chris would not sexually harass someone based on their experience with Chris, understanding Chris to be a very good person that has loyalty to their partner. Now, should other identities appear to Mm -hmm. make the same claim against Chris, even if Chris's network that is not incentivized to support Chris one way or the other chimes in to say that Chris would not be guilty of something Mm -hmm. like this, if other identities appear to make the same claim as Jordan's anonymous identity did against Chris, whether those are anonymous or with reputation or credible and reputable identities, the situation of Chris's, Jordan's initial claim against Chris will be refactored. So if an anonymous, yeah, right. like a troll continues to make, a troll with no reputation makes a bunch of claims against Chris, it doesn't really have any credence. But if a bunch of people who have reputation are stepping in, like in the Harvey Weinstein situation, and they're saying, We all have reputation and we all had this experience, then the public gets to see. That these claims are being made against Chris.
0: Yeah, and it's data driven truth rather than opinion driven yeah. truth. Yes. Wow. Is- and That's so, awful.
1: yeah, so what happens at the end of this kind of a situation? Is that if Jordan makes, so let's, let's also look at this situation as Jordan making a claim with her public identity. Because remember, Jordan is actually making these claims against Chris. The real reason why Jordan is making, and this is just a made up situation, right? But the real reason why Jordan is making claims against Chris is not because Chris actually did something. Chris maybe, may have been like, he wasn't aware of the situation, but it's honestly because Jordan is still struggling with the trauma of the abuse, the sexual abuse that she went through as a child. And so if Jordan makes things against Chris with her public identity and she starts making, let's say Jordan goes out and then she accuses Jordan accuses a hundred men of sexual harassment who didn't actually sexually harass her. This is the total opposite of the public narrative, right? So let's say she makes, 100 Mm -hmm. claims against people that didn't sexually harass her. Mm -hmm. Um, If those claims are continually proven to be false, then the group of individuals representing Jordan's community or culture are incentivized to approach Jordan and address the underlying emotional issue that Jordan is dealing with. So they can all, so their entire network and their entire community can gain higher reputation for their ability to really restore the issue and stop the claims of violence. Because disinformation, making false claims against someone because of personal trauma, is Mm -hmm. really in some ways... As bad in other instances as people who have done something wrong, who are committing acts of abuse, actually committing abuse. And it's about, we're designing the system uh, of reputation to stop the cycles of abuse. Yeah. And whether they're, you know, whether it's one, whether it's a form of, I was abused, so I become an abuser or whether it's the idea of I get away with it, and so I take advantage of my ability to abuse, regardless of the way the incentive system is structured, we're actually creating a system to try and break cycles. We're incentivizing the, in- the ability of individuals and collective environments to break cycles of trauma through exhibiting emotional intelligence and the ability to positively restore Insight of someone's own unconscious mind to the forefront of the way they're processing uh, their worldview.
0: I mean, it sounds amazing. I'm what I'm thinking about is that's a micro example of it affecting two individuals, you know, Chris and Jordan. But when you look at the fact that you're looking at the system changing and nation states being less violent, I could see it actually being applied to that as well with people within those nation states saying, actually, that is not what's happening on the ground. Actually, this is really the truth. And then getting that verifiable data from people in that specific country saying, actually, that's not true. That's not happening here. Exactly. When what you're getting, for instance, somewhere like the US is fake news, which is why they go and bomb the country and kill innocent people. For sure. So, yeah, I see it as a very micro solution to a, you know, a very large problem that we've got in society today to a massive macro um, application, which is just incredible. I mean, that's just why blockchain just blows my mind. I mean, humans blow my mind, but, the you know, the tech enabling this level of decentralization and this kind of... No doubt. It's, it's a crazy... It is such a remarkable... It is such a remarkable
1: time to be alive. The way that our human race will evolve so rapidly like over the next 50 years it is just going to be so it is what the world yeah. will become is something beyond the imagination of the majority of our, our current spectrum of human consciousness it, it is truly it is truly beyond in a beautiful
0: way oh, i agree It's gorgeous. So listen, and moving on from that, what are the things happening in the blockchain space that you see as the most inspiring and exciting to you at the moment? You know, what's really fascinating and beautiful to me is that I think there's a lot of public dialogue
1: about like, we need more women in blockchain. I think we just need more women. I think we need more women in general, but (laughs) if you actually take a step back, it's one of those situations where I'm like, wait a second, I'm like, I don't think you guys are actually acknowledging the real data here. Because the largest ICOs, like some of them, not the, mean, not Filecoin, but some of the largest ICOs that have happened in our industry, like there has been almost, I, I think there might in some ways in terms of like, if we actually look at the margins of things, like some of the largest ICOs that have been launched have been led and run by women, you know? Wow, that's amazing! I didn't know that. Yeah, Bancor Galia is the you know running Bancor, and then Tezos is also run by a woman. And those are, um, you know, other than other than other than Filecoin. I mean, I think those are the two largest ICOs that have happened, and they were two of the first pioneering ICOs. And what I think this actually represents is a real evolution in the way that blockchain represents a feminine consciousness and leadership style. Because if you look at some of the research studies that Harvard has published, you know, they have they've essentially said from all of the data that we've aggregated from these other people who have conducted studies about teamwork and the way women and men work the same or differently in teams, women are usually more geared to be about collaboration and consensus building. Because if you think about, Absolutely. yeah, you think about the way we evolved from like hunter-gatherer societies, and men usually had the spears and they went out and they went on the hunt and they killed the food, and women sat back in the the, the tents or the teepees, and they all oh, yeah. congregated and took care of the children and cooked the food,
0: and so they we from from our. Own- and so- yeah. And shared the food and solved problems and were the critical thinkers. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I'm totally aware of that. Exactly. Exactly. And so, from our primal evolution
1: of human form and consciousness, you know, we're essentially blockchain embodies. The actual dynamics of the way women work in teams. And what's so funny is like what you see in blockchain is when you have too much like like masculine energy, when you have too much of like male-dominated thinking or male-dominated consciousness, the projects fracture. Every single one that I've seen, they all fracture. And they fragment and they fork and the teams end up splitting off because they're not, the way that they're thinking about it is like all of those projects end up just splitting because people can't reach, they can't collaborate or they can't reach consensus because they're all about having the being like the dominant hunter kind of thing. And that's,
0: yeah, dominant. Yeah, that doesn't. Life. Very competitive minds.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does. It does to an extent, right? Like, I'm not saying it's bad or good, but I'm saying that the most successful blockchain projects that we're seeing are actually based on building teams around, and they're healthier long term because you're not creating what happens you, if, if you split from a project like that and if you fork, you can create tribal violence. Because if you, you can create a mindset yeah. by not seeing someone else's perspective, you can create us and them. And that can create tribal violence. And tribal violence is just as bad as nation violence. So it's the idea that yeah. the blockchain in and of itself embodies feminine leadership styles. Yeah. The teams have to be collaborative because they're decentralized and because you're actually creating a process of incentivized work and collective problem solving. Right. And they have to reach consensus to move process before forward. And that does take a lot of understanding and that does take so much empathy. And so I think what we're actually going to see is that blockchain as an industry is going to help lead a shift, a powerful shift in the female ability to both capitalize companies outside of the perverse incentives of the current fundraising environment, which is in some ways a bit predatory. And simultaneously, I think we'll really see the rise of feminine power merely because the system is designed to incentivize it beautifully so beautifully so
0: it's just like Gaia yeah. <laughs> I know it's just that's why I keep saying I keep drilling down I keep drilling down and going oh my god this is amazing I love it so basically I was just wondering what you know what would be your ideal world what kind of systems would we have powered by blockchain I mean we talk about the female mindset and how that feminine shift in consciousness will be Very empathic. And I thought about a couple of the conversations I heard you having about other systems like universal healthcare, and that is borderless. And I wondered what other kind of systems that you can think of that would be powered by blockchain that are on your horizon.
1: Yeah, I mean, so we've talked about, um, you know, within our own work, we've talked about the ability to—it's—it's it's the idea of creating something that is both universal and highly customizable. So you're still actualizing subjectivity and individual sovereignty while creating these networks of community, these networks of trust, uh, and networks where people are incentivized to either solve collective problems together, like universal basic education, being based on a process that you would actually get paid to go to school because. We would enter into a process of emergent nonlinear thinking in a creative economy where, hmm. uh, you know, blockchain is replacing jobs, already replacing jobs. Like there's a guy, there's one of my really good friends had his mailman approach him yesterday and saw that he was getting some kind of digital currency and had like a Bitcoin sticker on it. And he oh, said, yeah. do you do digital currency? The mailman did. And my friend said, yes. And he said, I just got into digital currency and I made thirty five thousand dollars last week and that's more money than I made as my salary as a mailman in the last year. Wow. And so what we're seeing is this economic shift is already already creating a change in the way we're thinking about the future dynamics of labor. Um, because people will leave their normal jobs that can be replaced by robots and automated, uh, automated systems and automated machinery, if they are able to have economic opportunity outside of their current job. And so that's actually the transition point that we're seeing: is once people find out about these things and they understand how to uh, how to actually make capital. And how to understand the incentives of this kind of system design, then we'll see a naturally emergent process of automated labor replacing more of the linear industrial, you're a part of a machine kind of jobs. And we'll enter into both an Internet of Work and Internet of Education and healthcare and all of these things that's based on a lot of creativity and nonlinear thinking in our collaboration with both human intelligence, human information and human ingenuity, as well as the ability for artificial intelligence, artificial intelligences to process vast amounts of, vast quantities of information at unparalleled speeds. So if you want mm. to think about something like uh, universal basic education would be a process where you're essentially, you're paid to go to school, you get money for signing up to learn about a thing so you can solve problems more effectively, um, or universal yeah. basic health. As a process where you can submit your biological data anonymously to a system of decentralized artificial intelligences where no one artificial intelligence has more or less intelligence than any of the other artificial intelligences. And all of those AIs are collaborating and working together to solve health problems based on vast qualities of quantities of Uh, and quality of biological data. So you say, well, we're looking for the cure for cancer. And you say, well, I'm willing to contribute my health data anonymously or publicly to this cause and this cause and this cause. And then whenever the problem is solved, everyone who has helped to contribute to those kind of problems, um, everyone who's contributed to solving those problems with their own personal biological information is actually rewarded for their contribution. So I think we're going to see, Yes. Shifts, and they all might use that capital for completely different things. Um, so yeah, there's I think we'll see shifts in both, but but that's not to say that universality is going to create the idea of universal collectivism, because I think that can also be uh destructive, just as I think universal selfishness can be destructive, universal uh, kind of like not having any level of creativity or uniqueness or self-expression is also not good. And so there has to be this dynamic yeah. interplay. There has to be a certain level of kind of like this entropy of change and growth. And so you have a very dynamic interplay of someone's own you know, subjective, creative, nonlinear experience of the way they believe the world should look or the way they want to shape the world. And then also an understanding of what's best for the subjective communities that they choose to opt into for for their surroundings and then for everyone at large. So I think, you know, what we'll really see, and I say, you know, we're shifting toward an infinite economy and people go, well, that's just crazy. They're like abundance, maybe. And I'm like, no, but listen, here's why. As I said in the beginning of this conversation, yeah. digital information is a non scarce resource. Mm. If we create hundreds of millions, which there are that many business, you know, if we create hundreds of millions, or even millions, whatever. I think it should be hundreds of millions. It should be a lot of different economies. It's like every different... Think about all the different plants and animals that exist on Earth, Mm. right? If we create hundreds of millions of different economies that all serve these totally different functions or purposes in different areas with unifying and architecture to navigate between the dynamic interplay of these systems, like an entire ecosystem, then we will have in those scarce economies with many non-scarce resources, we will verge into a world where the idea of money as we know it will become irrelevant and our value will be based on the process of deep wealth. Now, deep wealth is beyond the material. So it means that our relationship to what is really valuable is what provides us with purpose and meaning and, and more, more, you know, incredible, more deeper and more incredible human feelings like, you know, bliss, and real satisfaction beyond something that's fleeting or just, you know, manipulating someone's impulse. It's the idea of, uh, like it, it's the idea of real, real, real gratification and real meaning and real purpose in life. And it's when we move beyond what blockchain enables as the internet of value is actually a shift that links prosperity to our morality and encourages us to move beyond the idea of material economics into the idea of purposeful values. And I really...
0: Yeah, and it's almost going back to the guided principles, the guided principles that you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm aware we don't have a lot of time left, and, Tony, I always ask a few personal questions at the end of uh, our conversation, so I'm going to <laughs> ask you a few now. Um, yeah. You know, you, you're so well-read and you're so well-versed in this space, and there must have been some times when you've had some bad days or you failed in some way in your past that was really debilitating? And if so, what was it and, and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I mean,
1: so much, um, so much. And, you know, I, I think that, so I've had experience. Hello? With, can you hear me? yep, yeah, yeah, you're back on. So some people look at things as a process of success and failure, but I think that's really fleeting uh, because I, I think that if you just look at success, it's kind of the wrong incentive. Because then you kind of say, well, at the risk of the fear of failure, I'll do anything to win, right? And so I just look at everything as a process of growth and meaning and of learning. And I feel that when people look at someone and think that they've failed, I think that that's actually failing to see someone as a human or failing to see why they're valuable or where they need to grow and why they need to grow. And I think that we have to focus Mm -hmm. our energy on really not just looking at people as like company assets or, you know, it's looking at people as human life and encouraging a dynamic yeah. continual process of learning. So, yeah, I mean, I've had some, you know, I've had some crazy experiences in my career where I've experienced, you know, I've experienced people that have
0: been really hateful and oppressive to me. Um, I, well, I guess I was coming was, from was I think you'd get a lot of pushback. You know, I think you would have had a lot of pushback initially. Whilst I think that, A lot of what your culture and the movement that you have is incredible. And I would imagine everyone wants it. There's still the people out there that would be giving you pushback. And that's hurtful, right? Well, I mean, it depends on how
1: someone is doing it, right? So you just have to, at a certain point, you just realize, you know, like think about You know, the people, you have to realize as well that if someone tries to hold you down, what they're actually doing is they're showing you. If someone tries to make you struggle, what they're showing you is their weakness. So, like, I've had people say some hateful or hurtful things to me, but I look at it as a mirror. And I'm like, your perception of me is a mirror of you. And my perception of you is an awareness of me. And so I look at situations where people call Mm. me, you know, hurtful names or say hard things to me. And I'm like, okay. And what I, what I realize is that they feel weak. They feel weak. When you tell me that I can't do something. And when you call me a name and you say that I'm like this or this or that, it's actually a reflection of an area where that person feels that I am more equipped than them. What people reveal to you in those moments, what you have to realize is when people try to weaken you, it's an area where one, you are strong, and two, they are weak. And when you see what someone is saying as that mirror, when you fully understand that their expression is actually merely just a reflection of themselves and doesn't have anything to do with you, that's when you're really, really, really learning. And it's not about developing a thick skin like no matter what you say about me, like, I'm just going to keep, it's about understanding that what that person is presenting you with is an opportunity to learn. And they're actually giving deep strategic insight about the areas where they feel they are incredibly flawed and
0: completely and totally weak. And so, yeah, projection is a power thing isn't it projection is something that yeah i i see regularly from yeah people. yeah but but in terms of i think i
1: i don't i don't know if i i just don't think i think about things as a process of failure i say i've learned some really big i've learned some really big lessons and i'm grateful yeah. that yeah. life has presented me with the opportunity to learn because it makes you stronger, it makes you better, it makes you more capable at success. And so I guess I don't look at my failure as failure, but what I do learn is something about people. Because I have struggled. It has not always been easy. And what I've learned is that I don't make space in, in things that I do for people who would not support me in a time when I was struggling.
0: Yeah, Well, I was going to say on that basis, what do you do on a daily basis that's routine that helps you be the person you are today or that contributes to your wellness or happiness? Uh, Is there something that you do every day that you feel that's contributing to that? I mean,
1: I love to sing. So I think that singing is probably that thing that I do. I usually, I'm in meetings. I've been in back-to-back meetings since I literally woke up, sat up, opened my computer and I've been in meetings since then. And I will be in meetings until 11pm tonight. So when I have these like little breaks, sometimes it's only I have a 15 minute window. And I'll go, you know, I'll go work out or I'll go sing or I'll drink a ton of water. Or I'll just laugh. I think the other thing is that I just find a way to laugh all of the time. And I think it I mean, not even think it's like, that is releasing positive chemicals in my brain. So I think you just have to remember, like you just have to laugh about the little stuff. Like you just got to, there are certain things you just got to let go. And there are other things that you just need to laugh about. And I try and laugh as often as I can. And I try and express myself honestly through art forms and music. Um, and then I would say the other thing that I do is I, just, I, I read and I write as much as I can yeah, well, and the real ways that I are through that process of, you know, it's a process of self connecting, connecting with myself, but no day is ever the same. Every day is completely and totally dynamic, uh, fortunately. And I'm always, I'm just trying to go through this life and learn and see how the things that I've learned might be able to help, um, might be able to help other people and, and can help me serve as a leader in this movement that we're pioneering at Culture.
0: Well, I'm going to have to remember next time definitely to get you to sing when I talk to you next. You can do a song. <laughs> it feel so much better. But listen, another question is what one item in your fridge or pantry is the one that you replenish the most? Oh, gosh.
1: I don't actually know if I have anything in my fridge or pantry um, except <laughs> like –
0: that's so cool. So you ate out all the time.
1: No, I mean, the only thing I really – so, like, I would say, honestly, I have two things. I'm, like, one of those weird people who you come over and you're like, I'm hungry. And then you're like, wait, what? My my <laughs> bed is literally full of I, – I, I just drink bone broth because it's, like, super low calorie, super high protein, super nutrient dense. So I have, like, a ton of different variations of bone broth, like butcher's bone broth. And then I have a bunch of like water, sparkling water, like hydration, kombucha, uh, like homemade kombucha, and then different kinds of like coconut water. And I just it's essentially like I just have liquids that are super high in protein and then like a ton of water and then like super kind of like a light energy sources. That's that's pretty much it i'm like because i don't want to have to think i'm so busy all of the time that my the easiest, you don't have to, for, yeah. the easiest meal for me is one that i don't have to chew so i can still be on the phone as i'm eating it
0: <laughs> oh, that sounds fun okay so listen um last question are you a dog person or a cat person
1: totally both i love all kinds pot little mini pot belly pigs all kinds of animals That's uh so there cool. is yeah, I mean, all kinds of animals. I, I, I love, you know, and you know the other thing about pigs that's really interesting, like dogs, when they look in your eyes, they release oxytocin because we domesticated dogs, so they have a bunch of trust chemicals. But you know what's really cool? What I've actually seen in pigs, mm. pigs are really, like, they feel emotions. Really, pigs are yeah. very, very deeply emotional animals. Yeah. And it's so cool to see certain things like that happen, the way I mean pigs are emotional and they're expressive like they're smiling and they're happy they know pigs know when they feel loved and they know when they're sad when pigs are sad they will go walk they'll go into a corner and they'll sit there and they won't eat and they won't sleep and they're they're really remarkable and dynamic dynamic animals um and so there, yeah. I mean, there. I I love I love conscious life. Yeah, and um, all all kinds of cats and dogs and butterflies and pigs and all the things that uh, you know, all the things that exist on this earth are in some way, shape, or form beautiful because they contribute to the ecosystem that has created the life that we have now. And I feel very fortunate that we are all here alive on this planet today.
0: Mm, well, I'm going to have to share that conversation with my brother, Peter, who had a pet pig for a very long time. And he knew how much how beautiful that pig was and how many emotions that pig had. Honestly, tearing him away. He's now in India. Tearing him away from the pig when he was in Perth was so heartbreaking. Sure. Absolutely. Anyway, well, listen. That's a wrap, Tony. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. I love, love, love what you're building. It's a movement with incredible power and people helping you to drive it. What do people need to do if they want to get in touch with you? If they, you know, if they want to help in some way or or you know, just to get in touch with you.
1: Yeah. So my email is TLC, like tender loving care. Those are my initials. So T L Gorgeous. Thank you. At C-U-L-T-U dot R-E. So it's the word culture and then the dot is um, right before the R-E in culture. Um, The other way that you can connect with us is to go to uh, C-U-L-T-U dot R-E and actually just click on the link to sign up to join our Telegram and then reach out and, and connect to us there. We're always looking for you know, more ambassadors of the project and more people who want to actively participate and contribute to the growth of this movement, whether that's from a network effect community building standpoint, or a like world class technical development standpoint, that's, you know, that's our exact framework for the kind of people that we want to bring into this movement. So would feel happy and fortunate to have some some new minds reach out and get involved.
0: Absolutely. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. And so it's been remarkable. Every day is remarkable in my new world. Talking to you has been priceless really, Tony. Thanks again. I wish you all the best for the project and I hope we can talk again one day to see how it's going. And I hope next time you sing for us as well. I cannot wait to sing for you, Lizzie. Thank you so much for having me and you have the most wonderful day. Thank you. You too. See you later. Bye. (music) I <music>